This is the first part of the Easter story that you've already heard this morning, beginning in the 20th chapter of John. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So she went running and found Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken away our Lord from the tomb and I do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started to run to the tomb. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Very early on that Easter morning, Peter and John run for the tomb. And apparently John gets there first. Perhaps John is faster. Maybe because John is younger, we know, uh, we believe we know that John is the youngest of the disciples. And yet there are words that Jesus calls John that indicate that maybe John is so young that he may still be a child, in which case we wonder maybe it wasn't so much that he outran Peter, but maybe Peter ran fearfully and haltingly toward the tomb. Maybe the shame and guilt of the denial from three days earlier still weighed on Peter, but they both made it to the tomb. And Peter and John get to the tomb, and this time, though John is first, Peter looks in first. Now, we're not really sure about why that happened. Maybe because Peter is impulsive. That is his reputation. When Jesus had announced before his betrayal, one of you will betray me. Peter said, I'll never deny you. And of course, did. Or maybe we remember the impulsiveness of Peter in when Jesus was arrested, when he took a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the priest. And yet John had his impulsive moments as well. In the Gospel of Luke, we find that John and his brother, when they're walking through Samaria and the Samaritans um, deny Jesus or refuse to listen to Jesus, John makes this suggestion, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? So John has his moments. But for whatever reasons, John is more hesitant to look in the tomb. Uh, Maybe because he is afraid. I don't know how how quickly you approach a graveyard or a grave that might still be open. You might be hesitant in your approach. Or maybe it's not that he's afraid. Maybe he knows or senses that something really big has happened. Just as we learned about the Jerusalem temple, they had the, when you went to worship in the temple, the steps were arranged in such a way that no one could ever jog up the steps of the temple. No one was going to get to God's presence in a big hurry. And maybe in the same way, John thought, I bet not, better not rush into this. We don't know. But they both made it to the tomb. They both look inside the tomb and they both believe. But John comes to believe sooner than Peter. We're told Peter looks inside the tomb and then no other comment is made as Peter comes out. But we're told that John looks inside the tomb and John sees and believes. So a couple questions this morning. What exactly did John see? Well, obviously what John saw was, first of all, an empty tomb. Now, that could have been startling, but then on the other hand, a grave robbery, tomb robbery, was so prevalent in the Roman Empire that uh, several years after the death of Jesus, 
the emperor of Rome will actually make it a crime punishable by death to go and take things out of somebody else's uh, tomb. But rarely was the body removed. He saw an empty tomb. But not just that. He saw the clothes folded up neatly as if whoever was in the tomb was in no big rush to leave, as if whoever was in the tomb never had to struggle to get out. When Jesus was buried, if he was like many people who were buried, they gave them spices to make the body not smell so bad after quite some time. And they could put as many as 75 pounds of spices on a body. And yet everything folded up neatly. John saw that whoever escaped from this tomb escaped in a leisurely manner with no struggle whatsoever. And we're told John believed. Now, why did John believe? Why did John believe? Is it because he's smarter than Peter? That's doubtful. We see all the disciples in the Gospel of Mark uh, making mistakes, calling and asking for the wrong things, getting the wrong answer, drawing the wrong conclusions. I doubt it's a matter of intellect. Is it a matter of physical presence? Doesn't seem to be. Both of them went into the empty tomb, saw the same evidence. So what's interesting to me is that the very first Easter, belief in the resurrection had little to do with how smart you were and had less to do with whether you actually saw the empty tomb or not. But something else is going on. And so I wondered, what's going on in John that leads him to believe more quickly than Peter? And the first thing occurred to me is, well, maybe it's because John just loves Jesus more. And I don't know if you've ever loved something or someone so much that you just couldn't ever imagine that you would be parted from them, that anything bad would ever happen to them. I don't know if you've ever loved someone so much that you could only believe good things about them, even in spite of the evidence that might be shown you. Paul said this about love in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. So maybe just in his naive love, John loves Jesus so much, he just believes that something good had to have happened to Jesus. Maybe it's like that. We always believe and want the best for those we love. As my sons were growing up, we would take them, we would uh, take turns taking them to out-of-town tennis tournaments. And whichever parent was there uh, with the child out of town playing the tennis tournament, it was their duty to call the other parent and give the scouting report as the match was getting ready to get underway. So whenever it was my turn, I would dutifully call my wife and give her the scouting point uh, report and assure her that likely our son would win. And she would always tell me, she said, you always say your son is going to win. I believe the best. And maybe that's just it. John just believes in Jesus and loves Jesus so much, he just says he's going to win. He always wins. It's going to come out right. And how many parents? have ever bet against all the evidence and just convinced themselves that things would work out the way that they hoped or dreamed. Maybe that's going on here. Or maybe there's something else. There's an interesting detail that is found in the Gospel of John in chapter 20 when they're talking about Peter and John. They say that she, Mary Magdalene ran to Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, that's interesting because we all know, I think, something about Jesus. And we know Jesus doesn't love some people more than others. But it's not that Jesus loves John more than Peter. What I think we can figure out is that somehow John, who's writing John's gospel, knew himself to be loved. 
that if he were going to say anything about him that were true about his life, it would simply be this. I know that I am loved by Jesus. So he calls himself on more than one occasion the disciple Jesus loved. That's no small fact. Bill Hume wrote some years ago, who does a lot of work in evangelism, he said it's a lot easier for people to believe that God exists than for people to believe that God loves them. And yet, if you ask John, tell me the outstanding thing about your life, I think he would tell you is, I'm loved. Jesus loves me. And I wonder if the reason that John believed where Peter maybe could not yet quite believe was simply this. That he believed that he was loved so much that nothing could ever happen that would separate him from Jesus. He must have seen that kind of love evidenced by Jesus himself. Jesus taught the disciples to call God Abba or Daddy, which no one would ever think to call God Daddy. But Jesus taught them that they were loved that deeply. There's a great story. It comes from about 100 years before Jesus and there's a wonderful man of God, and, and his name is, is, is Hani, H-O-N-I. And the outstanding thing about Hani is he seems to have a very intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And so when Israel's in a drought, they come to Hani and they say, we want you to pray to God to make it rain. So he prays and nothing happens. So Hani then goes and stands in a place and draws a circle around himself. And he says, God, I'm not leaving this circle till it rains. And a few drops come from heaven. And honey looks up at heaven and says, God, that's not the kind of rain I'm talking about. I'm talking about rain that will fill our ditches, rain that will water our land, rain that will bring us a crop in due time. And then all of a sudden the heavens open and it starts pouring. And honey looks up and said, God, I'm not talking about that kind of rain. That will flood us and wipe everything out. I'm talking about a steady good rain and a steady good rain followed. Well, the rabbi of the local community is, is overhearing all this, and he comes up to him and he said, Honey, you have some nerve to talk to God like that. In fact, he said, I was thinking of excommunicating you from the synagogue. He said, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized is when you talk to God, it's like a son talking with a father. And he said, I figured that must be okay. That's the kind of relationship that I think John saw that Jesus had with the Father, and I think John had with Jesus himself. He knew he was loved so deeply that he just couldn't imagine, just couldn't ever imagine that he wouldn't be with Jesus. You may remember the great story Fred Craddock tells about a guy that went to school with him who became a missionary behind the Iron Curtain. And in this communist country, uh, he and his wife and two children are identified as missionaries and they're placed under house arrest. But good news comes one day and the guards come and they tell him, we're going to let you go back to America. But you can only take 200 pounds with you. Do you understand? They nod their head, yes, they understand. So the next several hours, they go through books, they go through toys, uh, they go through... The brand new typewriter. This was years ago before word processors. They look at that. They make decisions. It's hard. They weigh everything. They are ready. And the soldiers come and say, are you ready? Yes. 200 pounds? Yes. You've weighed it? Yes, they said. Then the soldiers look at them and said, and you weighed the kids? Suddenly, typewriters, toys, books, 
It was all trash, said Craddock. It meant nothing. The important thing was getting the two little kids on board. I want to tell you, I think John believes in the resurrection because he's been weighed. He knows that he is known. It's another story that reminds me of how John must have known Jesus. Uh, long before uh, Duke University became known for basketball, some of you may know they were known for weird experiments in parapsychology. And one of the experiments that they ran in the psychology department years ago was uh, with a mother rat and two baby rats. And what they did is they, they uh, separated the mother rat from her babies and put uh, an electric like griddle in between. So that if the mother tried to get to the babies, she would be shot. She'd be burned. And what they watched is that the mother kept going to the babies and she'd get shocked back off, shocked back off, shocked back off, shocked back off, shocked, dead. And the researchers drew this observation. The maternal instinct in the rat runs very strong. Here's what I think. I think John looked at Jesus and said, if you put me here and Jesus over here and you put death in between, he's going to stop at nothing to get to me. But this Jesus didn't hit death and bounce back. This Jesus hit death and went through just as John believed he would. You put me here, Jesus over there, and you put heaven or hell or anything you want in between us. And he's going to get there. He's going to get there. It was 99 years ago. The Titanic sank this month. And you'll remember from reading or watching the movie, chaos ensued. Uh, lifeboats, not all of them were released, and the ones that released were half-filled. And panic-stricken people manning the lifeboats went as far away from the sinking ship they could go, except for one lifeboat. According to witnesses and history, lifeboat number 14. Noticing they could take on a few more passengers, they steered back toward the sinking ship, back toward the people struggling for their life. And at the risk of their boat and everyone on board, they pulled as many on as they could. On the 75th anniversary of the Titanic, one little girl at the time was reminiscing, and this is what she said for the TV cameras, I will never forget as long as I live. Lifeboat number 14, because they came back for me. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus would come back for you?